This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. All right, let's start here. Um, I wasn't expecting this yesterday, but there is a ceasefire announcement regarding um, Israel. And the United Nations only has so much power and so much pull, but Canada decided to back this call. And it's not that I'm surprised that they did it, but it just continues on what's almost been universally accepted since October 7th when Hamas massacred 1,200. It was believed to be 1,400, but massacred 1,200 Israeli citizens and many of whom unarmed, many of whom unable to defend themselves. And it was obviously a surprise attack. How do we know they did it? They put it all on their phones. How do we know it was graphic and horrific and one of the worst things we've ever seen on our phones, on our social media accounts and on television? Because Hamas wanted you to see it. All of those reasons. And yesterday, Canada voted with the likes of, you know, uh, nice guys, nice, nice world guys like Iraq and Iran and Russia. And they decided that it was time to call for a ceasefire uh, through the United Nations. Um, But what's been universally agreed upon, regardless of how you view this conflict, is Canada's been all over the map with messaging all over the map. Melanie Jolie's the foreign affairs minister for our country, and she described it as a significant policy change. And I'm like, what day is it today? Which way did the wind start blowing? This is like we can put a few of these politicians on a roof and tell them your weather vanes and they keep spinning and spinning and spinning northwest, east, south, whichever way the wind blows seems to be the direction it goes. Let me give you Bill Blair. He said this on October 22nd, 15 days after the massacre. And he was adamant that a ceasefire would only be respected by one side. So what's changed? Here's Bill Blair. Is your concern that a ceasefire, calling for a ceasefire, uh, would be understood as calling on Israel and not Hamas to ceasefire? I have no expectation that a terrorist organization would respect international law or any call for ceasefire. So Israel is still under threat is what you're say, saying, even if there's that, a ceasefire? That, that threat continues to persist. There are, there are still missiles being fired from... Does that mean that Canada agrees with Israel that Hamas has to be destroyed? I think, I think they, they have a right to defend themselves against that terrorist threat, and, and quite frankly, Hamas has to be um, eliminated as a threat, not, not just to Israel, but to the world. What happened? What's changed? And it's been almost six weeks since those particular comments. If anything, Hamas has gotten more emboldened in their promises to commit acts and atrocities like October 7th constantly, regularly, again and again. Look, what am I against in this whole entire conflict? Hamas and terror, hostage taking, killing civilians. Also, Israel being uh, too you know, prescriptive with their response back. It's troubling. I think Israel's right on the edge. World opinion is telling you that that's the case. And yes, there are. there's clearly anti-Semitism in the air. There's clearly Islamophobia in the air. You can say both those things at once, and it doesn't mean you're taking a side. I want a Palestinian state, free of Hamas, that is. I don't want them at the negotiating table a year or two from now. And I want Israel to have a right to exist, especially free of the constant, decades-long existential threat that is waiting to get attacked again because they're Israel. And by the way, none of these other Arab countries, say this again and I'll say it till I'm blue in the face, none of these other Arab countries seem terribly willing to lift a finger to help the Palestinians. 
I mean, you can make your own calculations as to why that might be the case. Egypt doesn't want to help them. They loathe the Palestinians. They got no interest in letting Palestinians into Egypt and assimilating into their culture. Think what you will about that, but it's true. Jordan, no interest whatsoever. And the other oil-rich nations like Qatar, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, they want nothing to do with them either. They want order. They don't want chaos. They want discipline. They don't want um, basically headaches. They want calm. They don't want chaos. And they've got every right to that as as governing nations. Now, here's um, an interesting comment from Melanie Jolie. She talked about the need for that two-state solution. Here's what she said to CBC two days ago. I think where we agree is at the end of this conflict, there will be at one point a table of negotiation. Mm-hmm. Hamas won't be at that negotiation table, but there will Do be... Do they re- agree with that? Well, I think, well, this is our conditions mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, and it is the case for the entire G7. But at the same time, there will be Palestinian voices. There will be Israeli voices. And we need to make sure that we work many countries together to bring back on track the discussion on the two-state solution. Okay, we'll see where this goes. Hey, listen, you want a ceasefire. I guess that means you won't demonstrate this weekend on Saturday and Sunday in downtown Toronto, right? You wanted a ceasefire. Well, you're getting the government of Canada backing that concept. You're going to still be out there? Maybe we should let you cross the border and go to the United States and demonstrate. Or go to the United Kingdom, which abstained in this voting. You know who else abstained in the voting? Ukraine. I found that really, really interesting. Let me bring that back locally here uh, to Rob Ford Stadium. This is going to become a reality in the next couple days. But we found a clip from six years ago that documents exactly what Doug Ford wanted. This is this is when being the premier of two straight majority governments for the Ontario PC party is just a, a gleam in Doug Ford's eye. He probably couldn't have even predicted what would happen over the next six years. But this clip will be a year after Rob's passing, and this is Doug Ford explaining that he's really interested in talking to the then-Mayor John Tory about a football stadium named after Rob Ford. Think of the coincidence it would take for, for Doug Ford, then not premier, then not even a city councilor, to ask for this in 2017, then all of a sudden the city comes to him six years later when he's premier and he's got money and the city doesn't, and all of a sudden this is coming to fruition. What a confluence of events. Here's Doug Ford back in 2017. So we'd like uh, Centennial Park, uh, not the park itself, but there's a stadium that's unnamed uh, sitting there that Rob played uh, his high school career in and he coached there many a times. So we'd, we'd really appreciate if the, the stadium could be named uh, the Rob Ford uh, Stadium. So there you have it. And it's going to happen. Now, yesterday, Mayor Olivia Chow acknowledged she would, she spoke to councillors about a plan to rename an Etobicoke Stadium randomly after, well, also randomly, Rob Ford. But she says her support's got nothing to do with Premier Doug Ford agreeing to help fix the city's finances. Baloney. Baloney and cheese. This is exactly what Doug Ford asked Olivia Chow to do. And I support Doug Ford in doing that. He thought the city should have done this six years ago. They voted overwhelmingly 27 to 11 when there are a lot more city councilors to say thanks, but no thanks. We're not doing that for your brother. But now he's got some leverage. Now he's got some power. What I find insulting, I, I, I'm fine if Doug Ford wants to ask for this. And I would never tell city councilors, hey, you have to vote a certain way on this. But also uh, the mayor seems to disagree with me. 
Mayor Olivia Chow is pushing city councilors to get this done. Why? Well, there's a handshake agreement for Olivia Chow to get this stadium named after Doug Ford. And she can say everything in the opposite direction that it's not true. I know that it is. She doesn't have to tell the truth all the time. Politicians don't. Not calling her uh, the L word. I'm just telling you she's not exactly being forthcoming about this. It's too big a coincidence, A, and you can connect so many of the dots to this and figure out why this is indeed the case. So there's going to be a Rob Ford Stadium. There's going to be several councillors that didn't vote for it in 2017 that are going to vote for it in the next couple of days. It's politics, and you're going to have to get over it. Olivia Chow's going to vote for it, and she's kind of got the uh, the pinch of the shoulders on many city councillors that wouldn't otherwise dream of it, and they're going to vote for it also. It's high-stakes negotiations, and there's often leverage involved. And this is a case. Welcome to Rob Ford Stadium in Etobicoke. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. I was in a portable in fourth grade, and I couldn't stand it. But she knows the ins and outs of um, of school boards and, and education. We're going to talk about a few different things, whether she's former school school board trustee, Noka DeKrub. It's great to have you on, Noka. I appreciate you getting up this early for us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Um, that excitement wanes over time, but we're glad yeah. that you're... <laughs> By your ninth appearance, uh, it feels more like a burden. But um, but I mentioned portables, and you you wrote on uh, on X about it the other day. Mm-hmm. And so much of this we hear all over the place that the province is really struggling to keep up uh, for demand for schools. So they just add here's a portable here, a portable there. When I went to school, there was only one. But I know I've I've walked past schools, driven past schools, and it looks like there's seven portables, Noka. So this is getting to be more a common thing than just oh this is an emergency for a year or two, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. This has become a common thing. There are schools I've heard of in um, in uh, different regions that have uh, over 20 portables. Um, and unfortunately, it's due to the infrastructure backlog that has become um, a normal issue. You know, it's not something that uh, the government's been uh, addressing in a quick or meaningful way. Um, so neighbors hate them. Parents hate them. And unfortunately, the biggest part about portables um, that uh, I don't like is that they really disconnect students from the rest of the school community while they're in them. Yeah, I think you're right. Even for even for assemblies, even to be able to yeah. walk to the office, to go to the bathroom, um, there's just mm-hmm. simple things that you take for granted. I, I probably now I, I think about it. I was nine and I probably was like, hey, it's great to take an extra few minutes to get out of class when something's boring and go to the bathroom. But that's not what that's not education. And you're right. Teachers probably feel a lot more. How do I keep everybody focused? It's hard enough these days, isn't it? Let alone you're being in a bit of a, a square room disconnected from the rest of the school. Right. Absolutely. And and I think the government really needs to um, put more money into building schools faster. Um, the minister had a recent announcement about, um, you know, doing some of that work and also making um, making the uh, planning uh, a bit more seamless, which does take a long time, unfortunately. Uh, but really, it's, it, this has been an issue where um there hasn't been a push to build schools as quickly or, you know, as much as we need, because there's been this idea that eventually enrollment's going to drop down because, you know, we don't have enough kids. And, and in some areas, we do see enrollment decreasing, um, partly because of the housing crisis, because mm-hmm. housing is too expensive. People can't live around the schools and you're not going to have that many, that many kids going to, to schools in some areas. 
Um, but the reality is the federal government isn't going to allow our population to just, you know, die off. There's going to be increase in, in uh, immigration. Um, and, um, you know, we're going to continue to need building schools. So let's start doing it and let's start doing quickly. Noka DeCrub is our guest on, on uh, Toronto Today. I just got sent a text from a listener in London who documents that there's a school called Summerside and they opened in August. They opened in fall of 22 with 12 portable classrooms. They opened the school yeah. like we sh- we're not doing this right. If we're saying, hey, yeah. here's a brand new school, but here's 12 portable classrooms. Is there data? Is there data or is it all just anecdotal right now that kids just don't learn as well in these places? So I'm, I haven't seen uh, data specifically about that, but I'm sure that that uh, I'm sure that there must be. Yeah. Um, but we do know that it it does really disconnect uh, kids from from uh, the rest of the community, and and it kind of feels a bit isolating, and that's not really what we want. No, not in the least. Um, I know you you also made mention of um, Eastview Public School. Uh, there's uh, there was uh, it, it was discovered just in the last few days, actually. I think it was late last week that there's something called the Cool Kids Club, and they spell mm-hmm. it all with three K's. The inference is obvious. Created by a boy who refers to himself as the Grand Wizard. This is really bad stuff. And the idea is let's target black students at the school. Let's make them uncomfortable. Um, it, it's it, I think it's fair that parents ask what should be done? What are teachable moments and what do we do to make kids feel less harmed, less safe? We all went to school. And in my era, we probably said things we shouldn't have did things we shouldn't have. But the idea is you evolve. There's teachable moments. When you see a story like this, what do you think is the next step for educators? So it's absolutely, you're absolutely right. Um, it's all about teaching opportunities and teachable moments. Because when we're talking about a K-8 to school, we're talking about kindergarten to grade 8. So even the eldest grades, kids are about, what, 8 to 13 years old. Mm-hmm. They, they have a lot to learn. These are learning years, right? So we want to take these opportunities as, as learning opportunities to explain to kids why this is harmful, how this impacts other people. Maybe the kids don't even know what that means, what the reference is. Because, I mean, by by the older grades, they probably do, but how hurtful it, it is and how, how much damage it can do to somebody's life. So we really want to um, make sure that we are taking opportunities where learning is um, is a possibility and that's always a possibility, but there's also times where there needs to be consequences. And we're talking about middle school. So we're talking about Mm. um, kids that really need um, to have opportunities to learn more. Um, Anti-racism education is a really interesting conversation to have. My my, my kids are in uh, Ajax, and when my son played soccer, I'd often refer to it, even on the radio, as it's it's a veritable United Nations. There's kids from maybe parents from maybe eight, nine different countries, four or five different religions. But we just loved it because we were able to learn a lot more. When I grew up, everybody looked like me and talked like me. So so I think we're we're learning um, almost organically about other cultures and religions. Is there a fine line in schools, do you think, as a former trustee, where where we walk up to the line and teach kids about anti-racism, but we then demonstrate that, hey, you're different than that person who's different than that person? There's a balancing act, right? Absolutely. I think it's it's really about, you know, understanding our differences and really celebrating them and not being afraid of them, right? Hate comes from fear. Yeah. That's what hate is rooted in. People are afraid, uh, hate people or, or things that they are afraid of, that 
seem like a threat to them. So we just want to get rid of these ideas, right? So to remind kids that we have so much commonalities, that we have differences, that different people have struggled in different ways throughout history, and how do we shape a future that is better for all of us? Um, I know you're in Mississauga, correct? Mm-hmm. And yeah. you're going to get a new mayor. You've got a mayor in Bonnie Crombie that's leaving to become the Ontario Liberal leader. What are your thoughts yeah. on that departure? What are your thoughts on, on what you're looking for in a new leader? So I'm very excited for Bonnie Crombie. I think she's going to be an incredible leader. Um, she has been a wonderful mayor uh, to us in the city of Mississauga. And I'm, I'm really excited to watch her um, rebuild the Ontario Liberal Party, which has needed some help. Um, and hopefully some of that uh, star power that she brings and, and mm. the, the excitement that she's, uh, she's managed to, uh, to bring to the party will really help. Um, I'm excited to have a new mayoral race. I don't think I'll get involved in it, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm excited. <laughs> I know. I don't know. But, um, I could put your name forward. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure what my word is worth. It, it could be actually worse for you uh, than 10 minutes ago, but whatever. Um, <laughs> But uh, but I'm I'm excited to see how that shapes up. Um, yeah. I've heard of a few um, a few potential candidates. I know a, a number of city councilors are looking to put their names forward, but it's quite early, um, and uh, and we'll see we'll see how it goes. Okay. Hey, love talking to you this morning. Thanks. And the inside on portables. We're getting a lot of uh, people noting portables don't have sinks. Portables are colder in the winter. Yeah. Um, none of this is uh, none of this is ideal. So I'm glad you're shedding some light on it. Thanks for the time today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Joining us on the line, Matthew Taub. He's a hockey parent, a former hockey coach as well. And he joins us now on Toronto Today. Matthew, we've been aiming to get you on for a while. Thanks for giving us the time this morning. I appreciate it. No problem, Greg. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Do I have that right? Transparency has been the biggest issue. You just want to know when things are going on with not just your team, but teams, parents, coaches in your league, and when there's uh, disciplinary issues, correct? Absolutely. I mean, without the transparency of what's going on, I want to be able to know who I'm working with, who's taking care of my kids. If you think about a coach in most cases, especially when they start off younger, a coach is a random adult in your child's life. That's all they are, a random adult. And I want to know that they're, they're, they've been vetted, they're, they're good at coaching. I mean, I've been a coach not just through hockey, but as a recovery coach, as a personal trainer over the years. There's a, there's a skill to having it and how to do it properly. So having that transparency and knowing, if I'm looking for a lawyer, I can go to the Law Society website and I can see if there's ever been any issues with that lawyer. And I, have that, I should have that right to do it. It's not what I'm dealing with. Um, a police check is the is the is the baseline. I know just managing a soccer team for four or five years, or even when I coached house league, Matthew, you end up going and getting a police check. They give it back to you, and then you turn it into your organization. But that's just the baseline. What are some of the other checks that parents like you and um, coaches like you are looking for when they choose to bring somebody else on? What do they want to know about a person's background? Hey, Matthew. Oh, we just lost him temporarily. Let's see if we can get him back. But I will note that the GTHL has talked about maltreatment as uh, quite significant, like setting a goal of zero tolerance 
Do you bring somebody in who's been suspended? Do you bring somebody in who's grabbed a player? We've got Matthew back. Matthew, I was just saying before we uh, lost you temporarily, what are the things? A police check is that sort of baseline that uh, parents and volunteers end up getting, and they turn it into their organization, and usually they're good to go. What are some other safeguards and bumpers, if you will, to make sure that you're bringing in good people that don't have a bad track record to coach kids? Well, it just comes to the track record. You know, you want to, like, you're interviewing for a job. They should come with references. If they're coming from a different organization, what have they done? Who are they with? The problem there, though, and it still has that problem, is nobody knows what they've done because no parent is really talking about it because there's still this subculture of, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to say anything. My kid's being mistreated, but that's normal for hockey. There's a whole other culture going around this that's kind of taking away what we're what we're looking to do and and you know the first steps are number one parents knowing that if they're that they have the right to speak up without fear of you know repercussions or mm-hmm. retaliation on their kid being cut from a team not getting the ice time all that stuff uh once parents feel comfortable that they can advocate and speak up then this starts to change a bit and they can get proper references and they can get proper guidance and on top of doing anything other than a police check once you get to levels of like you know, GTHL and single A, double A, triple A, there are levels you have to have for, mm. for certifications, for courses, for coaching, but those are just skills coaching. There's no actual yeah. coaching course that, they, that they're doing and they really should be doing those. You, uh, Matthew Tobbs, our guest on Toronto today, you, you wrote a letter to Hockey Canada's board of directors and you want to make a public registry list of coaches and staff who have been sanctioned. Are you hopeful Hockey Canada takes that advice to heart and says, of course, we'll open up that process so parents know what they're getting and who they're getting that, uh, you know, the, who coaches their kids from 6 to 16? I think that would be great. Uh, I mean, ideally, they should. I think it's going to come down and trickle down like you started off the, the segment from the government, from, you know, the, the Minister of Sport and, and Heritage Canada. Uh, but unfortunately, there, their only power is having you know, the funding withdrawn, but big organizations don't need the funding. So then it just has to come down from Hockey Canada. I do hope that they do that. I really do hope that they uh, put in place a registry, but there's still such a uh, cloak and dagger behind this that I don't know if it'll happen. There's too much behind it. And I think opening up the truth behind it is scary to them. Really quick, uh, we've got about 20 seconds, but has this affected enrollment? Do you worry whether it's been the, the junior team scandal or parents being worried about who their coaches are? Does does hockey in Ontario or Canada still have a bit of a toxicity to it, even though it's a great sport and, and it can be wonderful? People are hesitant to play it? Now they are, yeah. Especially since the last, you know, since COVID mm-hmm. hit everything's dropped. Listen, I'm a hockey dad. I love hockey. I love seeing what it can do for kids. I like seeing how it teaches them how to mm-hmm. work with people they may not like, right, on their lines and whatnot. It teaches great skills for life. But I think that a lot has to change for the sport mm-hmm. to be picked up again and taken seriously. Matthew, you're, uh, you're a leader among parents. Thank you for doing what you're doing, uh, for listening to our show, being part of our show this morning. I appreciate it. Appreciate it, Greg. Thanks a lot. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. David Ryder is the uh, City Hall Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star, and he joins us now. It's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time for us. Good morning. I know you wrote about this yesterday, that this is not a, um, that at least Olivia Chow's quote documents, this is not a quid pro quo arrangement. To believe that 
it takes believing about seven or eight random things happen. <laughs> You're laughing exactly. Seven or eight random things happen. There's a little bit of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge here, isn't there? The the idea we got to suspend a lot of believability to think that this isn't something Doug might have reminded Olivia. Hey, I'd really like this, right? I mean, what the reporting that uh, myself and my colleague Ben Spur did said was that these well at the negotiations that were happening between the civil servants to get a new deal for Toronto and save its finances. There was no talk, we're told, at that table about, oh, we got to also rename a stadium. But there were parallel talks. Pretty much at exactly the same time the city was, you know, lobbying the province to come through and help save us. Started with a call from uh, uh, Doug Ford to Councillor Paul Ainsley saying, hey, we want to get this this back on track. And, and Paul Ainsley, the councillor, says that actually predated even Olivia Chow's um, mayoralty getting elected but that things heated up in November um, that Paul Ainsley reached out to Olivia Chow and she said uh, she would go along with the idea and that her office then started coordinating. They had a motion that they suggested to Stephen Holliday, who's the local councillor for that stadium. He said uh, he would support it, but that he didn't want to move it because he didn't actually write it. Um, Paul Ainsley mm-hmm. ended up moving the motion with Shelley Carroll supporting it. Uh, Shelley Carroll and um, Paul Ainsley both voted against the renaming in 2017. So there's obviously a, a change in the wind. Yeah. So it feels like there's going to be a lot. Of, there's going to be councillors that voted um, against it in 2017, David, that'll vote for it now in 2023. One one person who won't, and you have quite the quote from him, is Josh Madlow. He's pretty, he's a pretty uh, flag in the sand. He's not going to do it. Right. He says uh, he said he he said that uh, Rob Ford was dishonest, misogynist, homophobic and caught smoking crack with gang members. He disgraced our city. Uh, And there's many people who would be more deserving. He he says he will do whatever it takes to stop it. Um, but but I, it seems like between the people who like Councillor Francis Nunziata, who always backed Rob Ford, even when he was in you know the depths mm-hmm. of scandal, and then people like Olivia Chow and some of her allies. It seems to me there's a good chance uh, that this is is going to pass. I guess the most surprising name, and we didn't get a quote, just an email from his office confirming that he will vote to support it, Councillor Gord Perks. And I don't know if there was a council member who was more opposed to Rob Ford, even before he got into scandal, just on his politics. And then, of course, when things spiraled out of control, which shows and I mean this in a positive way, not, you know, Al Capone-esque. There's an Olivia Chow influence in council and and not necessarily just on this particular topic. But listen, this is if we had this with John Tory. I'd argue we had this with Rob Ford and David Miller. There are counselors that are going to want to stay on the good side of the mayor and not push them too hard. So when they want something for their ward, that maybe that's more accessible, David. There absolutely is. I mean, I've seen it with, you know, I've, I've covered mayors going back to David Miller. And I, the, the image I always get is like a, a magnet being the mayor and then kind of iron filings being the councillors. And they'll shift to whichever way, like whatever the magnet moves left, center, right politically, they'll shift. Because most of John Tory's council team had been Rob Ford's council team. And, you know, John Tory said, I'm, I'm completely mm-hmm. different. But then it was almost all the same people. And quite a few of those people who had uh, positions of influence under Rob Ford now have positions of influence, uh, including Paul Ainsley, under mm-hmm. Olivia Chow. So it, this is politics. It is co- it, it is compromise, um, and it, even, it doesn't really have to be written down into the New Deal that you have to rename the stadium. 
but this obviously seems to have greased the wheels. It's it's quite a story. I think it's it's you know it's it's political drama. It's families. It's obviously there's the notion that Rob and and Jack Layton uh, both gone way too early from what the, you know the the personal lives of those, their loved ones, but also the political landscape. Um, and they were friends and sat in city council together. I can't wait to see where this goes. I want to ask you about the uh, the Uber thing as well. Um, you've got reporting as well, and we've got you know our sources too that document that the city might the city solicitor is telling uh is telling the city look we told you that uber might sue you and you ignored us now we're telling you it's a really unlikely scenario that we wouldn't lose the lawsuit do you think there's mobilization from counselors to kind of back up the truck a little bit and perhaps uh acquiesce on that on the license for ride shares yeah it's interesting you know i've seen legal advice to counsel before. I mean, often it's confidential, but often I have sources who will tell me what it says. And I've seen it go both go both ways. I've seen the city say we're afraid of getting sued. And especially if we lose, it sets a precedent. It looks bad. I've also seen them dig in their heels and say, you know what, like the city does have resources. The city gets sued like hundreds and hundreds of times a year from everything, you know, somebody tripped on a sidewalk up to bigger things like this and sort of damn the torpedoes. On this one, I don't have a sense of how mm. it's going. I think it would be it was a, it was a, a, a sort of a off the cuff kind of motion, which I think makes it uh, more um, vulnerable to a challenge because they can say there was no consultation. I think there is some irony in Uber, which essentially marched into Toronto and started operating before it asked for a business license, saying, "Well, you didn't consult us because they didn't consult Toronto when they came in." But they're now an established part of the transportation system. So kind of what do you do? Yeah, um, I got a, just a few seconds left here. There's going to be also a potential vote on uh, the Dundas Street uh, scenario and the signage being changed. And for all these businesses up and down the long east west street, um, there's forty five hundred businesses that might have to change the address name or change the name. It's it's got some complexities to it. But what the city has is letting us know, as opposed to us the other way around, asking the city is it's going to cost a lot more money than they first forecast two years ago. Yeah, I mean, Stephen Holliday, who's uh, you know, arguably the most well, I think he's the most fiscally conservative member of council. He's he's asking for a, a full and total accounting from city staff to say what are the costs on this, because everybody assumes the projected mm-hmm. costs of all the renaming has gone up. Yeah, this is a this this is a tricky one, I think, for Mayor Chow. Uh, during the originally during the campaign, when I asked her about it, she sort of suggested this wasn't top of mind. Then later on, she doubled down and said, "No, people want to redo this, and you know, want to change the name, and we're going to change the name." Uh, I have a feeling we've seen the art of compromise happen so far in her in her mayoralty and and mm. in getting benefits for the city. I have a feeling we'll probably see some kind of compromise going forward. So fascinating. David, busy next couple days, all before the Christmas holidays. Thanks very much for your time this morning. Great stuff. Thank you. Take care. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. A deal got done in the United Arab Emirates um, that I think relieves uh, people, but it also creates this conflict, right, about the developing world and the energy they need to prosper. Um, This climate conference is important. No one's going to deny climate change. No one there is denying climate change. But there are balances along the way, aren't there? Uh, I want to bring on, I'm very happy to have him on the show. Uh, He's the mayor of Kitchener. He attended uh, portions of COP28. He is Barry Verbanovich. It's great to have you on in Toronto, Barry. Thanks very much for the time. Thanks for having us, Greg. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Are you a Kitchener resident for your entire life? I love Kitchener. I grew up in London, so we'd take our trips to Kitchener, have some fun there, go to the Odd and watch the Rangers, go to a concert here and there. Are you, are you a lifelong Kitchenerite? Well, not quite lifelong. I was actually born in Croatia and immigrated as a little boy to Canada and been here 
Uh, uh, well, it was, it was two when we immigrated to Canada. I lived in Winnipeg and Hamilton for a while and been mm. here since grade six. Oh, I love it. I, I love it. I, I pushed hard. My kid's going to university next year. I pushed him on Laurier and Waterloo, unfortunately. Uh, I'm not going to get my way out of this, but, uh, but you know, we live to fight another day. So you go over to the United <laughs> Arab Emirates. How long are you there for? Uh, so I was there for, I believe it was five days in uh, total. What was it like? Uh, listen, I mean, it was, uh, I think it was an important meeting because you have to remember that this was the very first time that cities have actually been able to formally be part of the COP process. Uh, which is a big deal. National governments are, you know, not always as, as willing, let's say, as ours are to engage with national governments. And the fact that uh, we were able to see a, 150 uh, mayors and local government leaders from around the world uh, be there to, uh, you know, emphasize the importance of the, the, the meeting and the work that was being done. The last big t- meeting that we had and, and former Mayor Tory participated in as well was in Paris back in, uh, yes. in 2015 uh, for, uh, for that COP summit, which, of course, we know was transformational in terms of the, uh, the agreements that the world made. And uh, it, uh, it, but that was held on the outside. It was held in Paris City Hall. Uh, at the time. And, uh, and so, you know, really thanks to the, the UAE government and, and Mike Bloomberg, former mayor of, of New York, uh, we were able to, to see this meeting happen. So, no, and it, important to note, no tax dollars utilized in your trip. That's correct. What do you think the whole trip would have cost for a private citizen to go? Uh, you know what? I mean, I, I really can't sort of speculate uh, those. It obviously depends on flights and hotels and, and different things like that. And but you fly commercial, not a, not a private plane. You're not John no, Kerry, no, no. right? You're on a commercial <laughs> flight, <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's it. I don't know. I, I you never know who can slide onto a a private plane and and who can't. The number seemed really high for me uh, to send 780 delegates there. Just because if we're talking about carbon footprints and we're talking about the environment, like that's I I get it. Uh, Politicians have to travel. We see it all the time. But did anybody in Kitchener say that's a that's a heavy carbon footprint to leave behind to take that kind of trip, Barry? Listen, again, I think what I would say to you is that there were uh, COP28 was an important time to focus on the work that Canada and Canadian municipal governments are doing in terms of addressing uh, climate change. Um, you know, FCM has really been uh, championing, as you know, a municipal growth framework with our national government, uh, yeah. which deals with issues like infrastructure, the need to invest in climate mitigation, climate adaptation, and so on. It's part of our budget 2024 ask uh, with the uh, government with $2 billion in the first year and a billion annually for at least uh, 10 years, because cities mm-hmm. can't keep tackling these things uh, on their own on the on the, the backs of of tax of local taxpayers um our our system is designed using a 19th century legislative and financing model uh but we're dealing with 21st century challenges as well about. you nailed it and, and and 21st century populations as well um you know if if we're going to bring, and I understand the argument for it, if we're going to bring four or 500,000 people to Ontario, a million people to Canada, all of a sudden we've got, you know, we've got energy grid issues. We've got how do we give them power? How do we give them opportunity? Um, and all those are, are, are big time issues, aren't they? 
Uh, absolutely. And, and you know what? I mean, what we know is that no one order of government is going to be able to solve this on their own. In Canada's context, it's going to take you know, action from the federal government, provinces and territories, and, and local governments to ensure that uh, we meet Canada's 2030 emissions reduction plan and achieve net zero emissions by, uh, by 2050. Um, you know, cities have been working on this in Canada for some time, including through um, the Green Municipal Fund that the Federation of Canadian Municipalities uh, has had in place for over 20 years with the federal government, as well as initiatives that we're doing on our on our own as, as cities uh, going forward. Barry Vervanovic, our guest on Toronto Today, is the mayor of Kitchener. Can I make the case that um, the developing world does need fossil fuels. They want some of the things that we have. The most simple example I use, Barry, is air conditioning. You you probably have it. I have it. I wouldn't want to not have it. They want things like cars and gas stoves and air conditioning that we have. I often think we can do more to limit ourselves. I have a huge problem with us telling the developing world what to do when they don't have what we have. Is that fair? No, I think what I, I, think what I would say to you is that we recognize that we're in a climate emergency and that uh, as a planet, if we want to uh, you know, start to reverse the trends that we're seeing in terms of climate change, in terms of uh, the, the issues that our, our planet is facing because of, um, quite frankly, our use of GHGs and, and so on over the years, um, we, we need to start changing the way we do things. And a big focus of this um, you know, climate summit and, and the, the deal that ultimately uh, the countries of the world, uh, you know, reached uh, as, as of the ending of the meeting uh, uh, last night, uh, our time, um, was a recognition that there needs to be financing in place to support that transition, particularly in the developing world. But I think the developing world would argue they need fossil fuels. It's faster, it's cheaper, it gets infrastructure built, it lifts people out of poverty. It, I would, I would, quite frankly, I would tell you that it doesn't lift people out of poverty if it's if all it's doing is creating uh, climate disasters in in those countries that are only making life more difficult for people. And so, what we need to do is recognize that we need to do things differently if we're going to look after our planet going forward, and making sure that you know our kids, grandkids, great grandkids. Um, have uh, a successful planet to uh, to live on. Interesting. That, yeah, that's interesting. We, we could debate that for a while. But I, I think I, I worry. I know we need to do more. I think pushing towards net zero is one thing. But I worry, Barry, that economies like China, India, they won't do this. They won't adopt it. And, um, and so our economy is affected by things we do, which is fine. But China and India won't, won't follow the United States lead or the UK's lead or Canada's lead on this. That's still a concern, isn't it? That the big emitters won't play ball and we're, and we're the ones doing the work. Well, that's where it's so important in terms of, uh, you know, summits like this. Um, because not only are the goals met or are the goals set as they were in uh, in Paris, um, but mechanisms mm. for getting people on that path uh, are dealt with as are check-in points to to really hold governments accountable in terms of uh, the work that's uh, mm. that's being done. Barry, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks very much for coming on. I hope we can have more more of them. Um, and uh, and thank you. There's so much more. Go train coming from Kitchener. I want to talk about housing in Kitchener. So let, let's revisit all that in a couple of weeks. I'm out of time for now, but I appreciate you making the time for us. No problem. Take care and have a good one. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Someone from the Liberal Party that disagrees with the UN resolution and Canada's vote on it um, is Anthony Housefather, who's the Liberal MP for Mount Royal. It's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time for our audience. You know I appreciate it. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. How disappointed were you um, by what happened at the United Nations yesterday? I was very disappointed by our event at the United Nations. Uh, I had spent the previous 24 hours working really hard to try to influence the statement that had been made conjointly with Australia and New Zealand. Um, and I was relatively satisfied with the statement as it came out because it made it very clear that any end of hostilities would have to be conditional on Hamas releasing the hostages unconditionally, laying down their arms, and not being part of any future administration in Gaza. So, of course, if Hamas stops fighting and lays down its arms, then there's no reason for the war to continue. Um, In this case, in the UN statement, there was no demand on Hamas at all. It was an unconditional ceasefire. And I think it was inconsistent with the statement we issued earlier that day. Um, And I think, as you stated, a ceasefire is an international legal concept. You're now saying that Israel should enter into an agreement with a terrorist entity that broke a ceasefire that existed on October the 6th, broke another ceasefire that had been in effect temporarily the week before by firing missiles on Israel um, an hour before it was supposed to end, um, and and now has no obligation under international law to respect anything. So I, I'm very disappointed that we didn't vote consistently with Canada's history at the UN, where we don't single out Israel differently than every other country. And... Um, and, 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 and consistently with the statement we issued earlier that day. Well, and uh, maybe make the case as well that I'd make the case that the inconsistency also is had we called for a ceasefire, or had there been a ceasefire five weeks ago before hostages are released, we're not getting those people back. And so there were many people, you've seen them on the streets, you hear them all over the place, ceasefire now. There's a lot of, of hostages who've been through trauma we can't even imagine, Anthony, that wouldn't have been reunited with their families had a ceasefire gone into effect five, six weeks ago while Hamas still held all those hostages. Well, I mean, I, I think, again, one of the preconditions has to be that, that, that hostages are released. This U.N. resolution mentioned the hostages should be released, but it wasn't tied to the ceasefire. It, it, it said hostages should be released separately. A ceasefire should immediately happen. Um, and, and, and again, that's, that's inconsistent. Why does Hamas get to regroup? And, and just continue on with its mission. As, as Hamas has stated repeatedly, it, its charter says it wants the destruction of Israel. And, and not only Israel, by the way, the Jewish people around the world, all, all that a ceasefire will do is give Hamas the chance to regroup, rearm, and keep firing missiles at Israel. It, 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 unless you're going to say Hamas has to, to, to give up and lay down its arms, you're putting Israel, in my view, in danger by having this group re- regroup and, and do what they did again on October 7th, the second time. Anthony Housefather is our guest, uh, Liberal MP, joining us on Toronto Today. There's 158 Liberal MPs here. You're one of them. Marco Mendocino is another who spoke out about it. Um, do you feel more adrift from the rest of your party than you might have 24 hours ago? It's an honest question. The Liberal Party is a very diverse party, and we have very divergent views and caucus on this issue. And certainly, Marco and I are not alone in our support for Israel and our, you know, our, our views on this issue. We're, we're, we're certainly not just me and Marco. Um, the, the the caucus is is is, is obviously. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not giving away a caucus secret here. It's, it's, yeah. it's obviously by our public statements, very very much divided uh, on this point of view. And uh, up until yesterday. The view espoused by the government, while I wasn't always exactly in agreement with with every statement, 
was generally consistent, I believe, with my worldview. Um, the, the, certainly the vote yesterday was a deep disappointment and is uh, very inconsistent with how I believe Canada should be presenting itself internationally at the U.N. Do you worry this is just to placate voters for a party that's struggling in polling right now? Look, I don't impute motives um, onto why decisions are made. There's, there's, there's broad arrays of reasons, and different people have different reasons why they support one thing or another. Um, I don't think, I think it would be very simplistic to say this was done in order to placate certain groups of voters. Um, it obviously uh, deeply alienated many Canadians, too. So um, my, my fear, of course, is that historically, um, and, and this has been true under the Liberal government, where in fact, at the UN, the Trudeau government has a stronger voting record in support of Israel than even the Harper government did. Um, has been, it's been consistent that Israel shouldn't be isolated by disproportionate focus on Israel and unfair focus on Israel at an international body. Um, and I've, I've held very true to that. I think that Israel is often stigmatized and, and singled out by countries with horrendous human rec- rights records at the UN. And yesterday, well, Israel's at war. Israel needs allies today. Yeah. And while, again, I think it's absolutely fair to criticize Israel government policy, and it's very fair to say that we think that civilians need to be taken care of better, um, you know, during a war and, and that Israel needs to maximize efforts not to impact civilians to say that Israel should stop fighting with no return engagement from Hamas, I, I think is, is, is just unacceptable. And, and so immediately after the vote happened, I decided that I would make a public statement about it because I certainly don't want this vote mm. um, to be tied to me. And I want everybody in Canada to know I don't agree with it. I think that and that's the point of politics and that and that's exactly, you know, we criticize politicians for just voting, quote, the party line. And I think you get respect for stepping out and saying this is one where I'm, I'm I don't mind being independent and saying what I want to about it. And I think people admire that, Anthony. I do. Uh, thanks. Well, I mean, I think one of the things is our members of parliament have a lot of power in terms yeah. of being more like American Congress people who take their own positions. And I think very often Canadian parliamentarians have abandoned and have abdicated their own responsibilities. And so everyone just sees people as part of a party and people shouldn't see people as part of a party. You, you, you elect 338 people to yeah. parliament, you don't vote for a political party. And those people have responsibilities to their constituents and to Canadians to say and do what they think. I appreciate you coming on. Let's stay uh, in touch on this issue. And I appreciate your words this morning. Thank you so much. Thanks. Have a good day.